Welcome to Tentpole Trauma, the podcast where we look at movies that came with hype and high hopes, but left with crushing disappointment, either critically, at the box office, or both. Freed from the weight of expectations, we seek to examine these underperformers under a new light, parsing through the good, the bad, and everything in between with the hopes of gaining a better understanding as to why they failed to find their audience. Warning, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie that we're discussing today, I suggest you stop the podcast and go watch it. Then when you come back and listen, you'll get more out of the discussion. On this episode, we revisit the Shawshank Redemption. Okay, I am Sebastian, and I'm here with Jennifer. Hello. And we are doing one of our Just the Two of Us special podcasts. It was Memorial Day weekend at the recording of this, and we decided to give the other hosts a break so they could enjoy themselves. The world seems to be opening up a little bit, Mm -hmm. so people want to go out and do things and don't want to just Zoom call on podcasts. Who figures? Why wouldn't they just want a Zoom call forever? In fairness, we didn't really even (laughs) ask anyone because we just knew no one would want to. Well, yeah, it's a beautiful weekend weekend and people should be out and about. It's been it's been Been a time. Yeah. (laughs) So we decided to do a podcast about a movie about prison and being... (laughs) Stuck indoors. Um, this week we are covering the Shawshank Redemption, Woo! the 1994 adaptation of uh, Stephen King's novella Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. I believe it was originally published in the Four Seasons uh, compilation book. I had that book as a kid, and I read, I think, The Body, which had been mm-hmm. made into Stand By Me, yep. also by Castle Rock Entertainment, the production yep. company that made this movie, and Apt Pupil, which was also mm-hmm. made into a movie later with Brian Singer uh, as the director and Brad Renfro as the mm-hmm. star and Ian McKellen. But this was another one of the novellas. There's one other novella, I forget what it's called, but it's really weird nobody's ever tried to make it into a movie but it's the only novella in that collection that hasn't been made into a movie anyway this movie is a very famous movie that i think most people have seen but what most people don't know is that it was not a hit upon its initial release i certainly didn't know that i was shocked Yes, it was actually a big financial failure. It has since become so famous and beloved that I think they released it at one point and it ended up making its money back eventually, but its initial box office run was dreadful. It really did badly. And it was a $25 million movie, so I don't even think it made a million dollars on its opening weekend. And we can talk about maybe why that happened. But Like the film that we discussed last week, John Carpenter's The Thing, 
this is an a redemption story because not only is the movie itself about a redemption but the reputation of this movie has been redeemed and it is gone on to be the number one film of all time on IMDb, IMDb ratings. It's number one. I believe it. And some interesting trivia regarding the film's box office failure from IMDb is uh, Warner Brothers actually shipped 320,000 rental copies to U.S. video stores. And this was a figure a spokesman freely admitted was, quote, out of whack with the film's performance in theaters. Yeah. But the film became the most rented video of 1995 and one of the highest grossing video rentals of all time. Right. So that's... It also got nominated for a bunch of Academy Awards, so I think that helped to sort of boost its reputation on video. And then it got played a lot on um, cable, I believe on TNT or something like that. And it's just one of those movies that has grown and grown and grown in estimation and is now pretty much widely considered to be one of the greatest films of all time, or at least in terms of dramas. And, you know, it's in the Library of Congress and all this stuff. So it just goes to show that even though your movie might bomb on your opening weekend, there can be still hope if your movie is good enough. There's still redemption. There's still redemption. People may find it one day and love it. This film is directed by Frank Darabont, who is a huge fan of Stephen King. Since this movie, he's done The Mist. Mm-hmm. And did he direct The Green Mile, too? He did. He directed and wrote The Green Mile. Which was really a follow-up to this. I feel like they really tried to recapture that Shawshank redemption magic with The Green Mile, and I don't think they were entirely successful. But nevertheless, it was a big film when it came out a few years later. So Frank Darabont is somebody whose name is closely associated with Stephen King. I think he would be considered the greatest adapter of Stephen King's work. Also, I think Stephen King would agree because Shawshank Redemption is quoted as Stephen King's favorite adaptation of his work. That would make sense. Yeah. Considering we know he doesn't like The Shining. (laughs) (laughs) So that would leave Shawshank Redemption pretty much out in front. Right. So... Yeah, it's directed by Frank Darabont, who also wrote the script. I think he had had the rights to the movie as early as like 1987 or something, but this movie didn't get made until 1993 and was released in 1994. And uh, there was a whole bunch of people up for the role of Andy Dufresne, who is the main character, interestingly. Um, There was... uh, Tom Cruise, I think he wanted Gene Hackman at one point. Kevin Costner almost did it, but he couldn't do it because he was making the film Waterworld, which may be being discussed soon on this podcast. Yeah, a lot of big names were up for the role of Andy Dufresne. And uh, any others that you know of? Yeah, uh, Jeff Bridges, uh, Matthew Broderick, Mm -hmm. Nicolas Cage, Johnny Depp, and Charlie Sheen. Wow. And Tom Hanks had turned it down because he was already committed to Forrest Gump. Right, which was one of the movies that this was up in competition against. I can really see Tom Cruise. I mean, no, I cannot see Tom Cruise. (laughs) Look, Tom Cruise can do anything, no, so I know, who knows? But, but I'm just like seeing a much more action-y version yeah. of... Um, well, that escape would have been something else that's with right. Tom Cruise. He would have really <laughs> escaped from a real prison. 
I could see Tom Hanks as yes. Andy Dufresne. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, very easily, especially as he is portrayed in this movie. But I'm glad that we got Tim Robbins because I love Tim Robbins. Love him so much. Yeah. Well, you know, so I supposedly look exactly like him, so it Identical makes twins. sense that, that you love him so I know. Much. No, really love Tim Robbins. I mean, he was not a big name or a big get necessarily. He'd been in movies. He'd been the star of some movies. But considering the other names that were up for the role, he was not uh, a big name. Morgan Freeman plays the other pivotal role as Red. Now, in the novel, Red is an Irishman, which is why his name is Red. Ah. But they said, who cares to that, and cast it with Morgan Freeman, and I think they made a wise move there. Oh, yeah, it's, it's one of his best. Yes, he's the very much the heart and soul of this movie. It's all told from his perspective, so it's really hard to imagine this movie without Morgan Freeman at the center of it. And he does a lot of voiceover in this movie, and I think... That was sort of the beginning of the Morgan Freeman voiceover it, trend. It was. I think this was actually, this was his first time narrating a movie. Right. And then this kind of jump-started his narration right. or voiceover career. Yeah, pretty yeah. much after this, if Morgan Freeman is in your movie, he's going to do some sort of voiceover narration at some point. There's even some movies that he's not even in that does voiceover narration. Like, I think the... Steven Spielberg, War of the Worlds, has a Morgan Freeman narration in the intro, and he's not even in the movie. But yeah, this is sort of ground zero for Morgan Freeman narration films. The only other thing I wanted to add uh, earlier when you were talking about um, Frank Darabont having the rights um, for quite some time from Stephen King to, to make this mm -hmm. was um, that this is, again, IMDb trivia said that Stephen King never cashed his $5,000 check for rights to the film. Several years after the movie came out, King got the check framed and mailed it back to Frank Darabont with a note inscribed, quote, in case you ever need bail money, love Steve. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Yeah, that's great. I just love it so much. Stephen well, King is a delight. He's an awesome guy, and he's given us many great, wonderful stories. The other people that were actually up for the role of Red, because you were saying he is an Irishman in the story, were um, Clint Eastwood, Harrison Ford, Paul Newman, Gene Hackman, Robert Redford, and Robert Duvall. Okay. So that's some pretty heavy headers. Uh, so Gene Hackman was up for the Red role. That Which makes, makes sense. more sense because he's, he's older. older. But yeah, I'm happy with the two we got. Absolutely. And it's also one of uh, Morgan Freeman's favorite films, too. I would imagine. Which, I mean, how could it not be? He is really the center of this. I mean, T Tim Robbins is great, too, but it's kind of Morgan Freeman's movie, really. He is the emotional heart of it, of it for sure. When did you first see this? Well, I was thinking about this earlier today because I've seen it so many times. I, I love this film so much. And I think because when I looked at the release date, like I said, it was in... October of 94. So I probably did see it in the theater. I'm pretty sure I did. I mean, I was going to movies and I would have been old enough to see this in the theater because uh, it's R rated. So I probably did see it in the theater, but I've seen it so many times since like on home video, like you said, it was on TNT. You just know it so well. But then still, like watching it today, I'm still moved by it in so many ways. Yeah. And there's, it's just a um, great film. It's a pretty perfect drama, I would yeah. say. And I did not see it 
when it first came out. I was working in a movie theater at the time, and I remember it coming out. I think we had a screening of the movie in our theater, but we didn't actually show it. So I seem to remember popping in and watching a little bit of it. And I was like, oh, that looks pretty good. And then I didn't end up seeing it for whatever reason. Had it been playing at the theater I worked at, I would have definitely had seen it because it got like a pretty serious release. I was working in an art house. Right. So we got like art house movies. This wasn't considered an art house movie at the no. time. It was considered a big blockbuster. blockbuster drama. And so it didn't play at the theater I worked at. And I, you know, I didn't get around to seeing it when it opened. There were other movies that were sort of stealing its thunder at the time. And so I didn't get around to watching it. And I don't think I got around to watching it many years later. And I think I might have seen it for the first time on cable or something when I was visiting my parents on a holiday or something like that. And it was on and I just was like, oh, I'll watch that movie and, you know, really liked it. Since then, I've sat down with it and watched it more seriously. But I think I remember seeing it first on TV. You know, I liked it a lot when I saw it, and I've only grown to appreciate it uh, more as time goes on. I don't know if I would hold it quite as high up as other people do, as one of the greatest movies of all time, but I certainly acknowledge that it is a very good, uh, powerful film. Now, since we are doing a movie that I think a lot of people are pretty familiar with, we won't belabor every plot detail of the two and a half hour of a two and a half hour movie like we usually do we may be trying to get away from that format a little (laughs) bit because i i have gotten some feedback that people are like you know you don't have to go over everything (laughs) that happens in the movie right so we're going to try to loosen up maybe a little on that restriction get loose you know it's a holiday Woo! yeah we're partying oh yeah but we will go through it in a general sense. Yes. So the film opens with the trial of Andy Dufresne. Mm-hmm. It's in 1930, 39, I think. It's late 30s. Late 30s, yeah. We see Andy. He's in his car. He's drinking. His wife is cheating on him with a tennis instructor. Golf pro. Golf pro. And this is being intercut with his trial, mm-hmm. where obviously... Things have ended tragically, and he's obviously been pinned for the murder. Looks like he's going to get put in prison because the uh, lawyer, who's played by Jeffrey Dumont, who is a regular in all Frank Darabont's movies, hmm. he's always in Frank Darabont's movies in some roles. And, you know, obviously this is a small part because it's just the beginning of the movie. But it seems like he's got poor uh, Andy on the ropes because the wife has been shot Eight times. It was four times per lover, I think is what he had said. Right. I think. So it was a total of eight shots. Right. It was four for each person. So even if it had been a crime of passion, they're arguing that it's hardcore murder because he had to stop and reload to keep blowing them away. So he's going to prison and it ain't looking good. Nope. So he gets sent to prison and we are immediately introduced to our other main character, Red, played by Morgan Freeman. And Red is sort of holding court with his prison buddies, uh, one of whom is played by William Sadler. I forget his name. It's like Hayward or something. Mm -hmm. And he's kind of the dummy of the- Haywood. Yeah. He's kind of the dummy of the group, but it's a pretty fun performance by William Sadler because- He's a decent guy, but he's a little thick, so he screws up things here and there. 
Another one of the cons that he hangs out with is David Preval, who you'd probably know from The Sopranos, if you ever saw it. Richie April. Yes. Um, and there's some other uh, guys of note. Uh, uh, the, the man that we thought that on this watch, we were like, is Ron Perlman in this? Yeah, At we first thought it was glance, Ron Perlman. But it's an actor. His name is um, Brian Libby. There, yeah, there's a couple other recognizable character actors yeah. that are in Red's crew. So they're all watching the new prisoners getting brought in and they see Andy being brought in. And like the way this is shot really sort of heightens Tim Robbins's height and awkwardness as he's being sort of led in on the chain gang. And they're taking bets on who's going to cry the first night. So you don't know that that's what, that's they're, what doing they're doing at first. They're um, betting cigarettes on like... Who, you know, they're on, on who's their horse is what they're saying. And, right. you know, they're like betting each other a certain amount of cigarettes, but they don't. Yeah, it's not spelled out as to what it's for, but, you know, it's something along these lines. Yeah. The important part of it is that Morgan Freeman sort of centers in on on Andy for whatever reason. Yeah. He's like that guy. And, you know, William Sadner picks this heavy guy as the one. And then the heavy guy ends up being the one who does cry that night. Well, because William Sadner, like, takes him there. Yes. Because, but also, just quickly, the way that, I love the the line that Morgan Freeman has when he, Andy catches his eye. He was like, eight cigarettes on that tall drink of water with a silver spoon up his ass. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a great line. Yeah, so that night, you know, it's the, the hardest night of being in prison because, you know, you're you're stripped and uh, de-loused with this oh. horrible powder and you have to, like, sit there in your cell covered in awful powder and, you to do and burning. The, the prison walk to your cell buck-ass naked. Naked, yeah. <laughs> so that generally tends to break guys. And, uh, yeah, so William Sadler happens to be nearby his horse, horse and so he... <laughs> goads the guy into crying basically by he's basically like i'm going to show you around to all the good people and you know but it's really like and they're gonna rape you well yeah they're really gonna like your your big butt and all this stuff yeah it's just it's pretty bad so the guy ends up crying and then the head prison guard played by Clancy Brown, who could not be more perfectly cast as the best. a giant, awful prison guard. <laughs> so scary. And I mean, I think this might be his most notable role. Yeah, he's great. Horror fans know him from many things, but this is probably his biggest dramatic role. So he comes and beats the shit out of the poor fat guy so badly that he ends up dying. So we see how horrible this prison guard is. Well, and some other interesting trivia is that Clancy Brown said that he had received several offers from real life correction officers to work with him in order to make his portrayal of Captain Hadley more realistic. He turned them all down because Hadley was an evil character and he didn't want to misrepresent real correction officers. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think he represented them fine from what I know about correctional yeah. officers. I mean, he's he's terrifying. Yeah, no offense to any correctional no. officers out there, but you guys have a bad reputation. He's terrifying in the role. He is really intimidating. He does a great job at those things. And oh, yeah. he's got he's... that great Clancy Brown voice. He's so great. He's so scary. So the next sort of part of the movie is we see... Andy trying to sort of acclimate to his new life in prison. At first, he really keeps to himself. 
which works out okay from in one regard, but he gets sort of honed in on by this group of prison rapists called the sisters. The sisters. And one of them is, I forget the actor's name, but he was in aliens. He played uh, one of the characters. Yeah. In aliens. Uh, the the uh, character's name is, I think it's Boggs. Boggs. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And his real life name is Mark Ralston. Somebody I don't remember his name, but I've seen him in a bunch of movies. I think I even saw him in something recently. But um, yeah, he plays a really horrible, uh, rapey creep and him and his other rape buddies go after Andy. Andy does a pretty good job of fending them off, but he eventually succumbs to them because they gang up on him and and they just basically sort of terrorize him. He's just repeatedly raped and beaten, and you know, thankfully the film spares us yeah. uh, the raping part yeah. because we know that's what's happening. And a lot of times, prison films go there. Yeah, it does, but it lets you know. Well, you know for what? Sure. No, you know what happens. But I'm just saying, you're not. No, there's no question about it. Yeah. But I'm just saying, we're not having to watch. No, no. You know, like there's always the shower scene or something terrible that happens in a you know any sort of prison drama. Yeah. So we're spared that is what I'm saying. But it doesn't get graphic. It doesn't but... get graphic, but you know that's what's happening. And yeah, he's just getting beaten and raped repeatedly in the way that it's you know told by Red's narration is, you know, this is kind of what's going on for like the first two years. Yeah. Where it's not, you know, it's not all the time, but it's, you know, it's happening enough yeah. where it's kind of starting to break Andy's spirit, you can see. Yeah. And time passes in this movie you know, we, we cover a long stretch of time. I think we cover almost 30 years. So time passes and, you know, it's, you go into the next scene, but it's months later. Yes. Red is known as the guy in the prison who can get you things. He's that guy. Um, every prison has one. And so Andy comes to him with some requests. So they begin to sort of form a friendship their first time that they talk and red you know red's been kind of keeping an eye on him from a distance and and andy just is keeping to himself like he works in the laundry he's fighting off the sisters and he's just trying to just keeping his head down type thing and so yeah he comes to talk to red and the first time they speak is in the prison yard which um and this scene is is great because they're just you know people are just throwing the ball around or whatever in the trivia it was saying that the scene took nine hours to shoot huh, okay. of them just in the prison yard throwing the ball around. Morgan Freeman threw the baseball for the entire nine hours without a word of complaint. Wow. He showed up the next day for work with his left arm in a sling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's not easy to do. No, I mean, it's hard I just, I mean, just my softball. Well, any any repetitive <laughs> motions can yeah. do that to you, but throwing a baseball, yeah. Yeah, anyway. Um, but yeah, that's when they, they meet in the yard and Andy's just like, you know, I hear you're the guy who can get things. Right. Initially, he wants a little hammer. So it's like a chisel. It's called a rock hammer. A rock hammer. And Morgan Freeman's a little concerned about getting this for him because, for one, it could hurt or kill somebody. It sounds like he wants a weapon to defend himself with. Two, you know, it sounds like something he could try to break out of prison with. But Andy's like, if you see this thing, you're not, you're going to realize that's ridiculous, right. you know. And so Morgan Freeman does get him the the rock hammer and it's, you know, it's like a little chisel. It looks like a little tiny anvil. Yes. It looks like a little tiny or anvil like rock with a handle. Or something, yeah. Yeah. It looks like a little tiny pickaxe. Pickaxe. Pickax. Yes. But it's small. 
And, you know, when he gets it, because, you know, they show they do show the scene of, you know, stuff coming in and he's like got his network of like, you know, comes in through the laundry and this yeah. guy gets it and like passes it to him or whatever. Well, it goes to the it goes to Brooks, the, right, but the it goes librarian. To the, yeah, but it goes to the, the laundry. Yeah. And then Morgan Freeman Red gets it and then he passes it to Brooks as the as the library card goes yeah. by yes. for him to give it to Andy. But when he sees it, when Morgan Freeman unwraps it, he likes like laughs to himself because it is, it's like a, a mini like pickaxe. Yeah. And then, and this is the scene where we're introduced to Brooks who becomes an important character yeah. later. He's the oldest guy in the prison yeah. or one of the oldest yeah. lifers or not. He, well, he's not a lifer, but one of the oldest inmates. He's, he's an old been guy there since 1905. Yes. And it's now the late thirties at yeah. the beginning of this the beginning. movie. And he basically handles the library, which at the beginning of the movie is this just shabby little room yeah. with like, I don't know, a hundred books yeah. or less in and it. Like magazines. Yes. Yeah. Andy gets his little pickaxe and he and uh, uh, Red become friends. He goes to him for a couple of other things. He goes to him for a Rita Hayworth poster mm-hmm. because all the guys are watching uh, Gilda, mm-hmm. the movie Gilda, and there's that great scene where Rita Hayworth flips her hair, and they all love that scene. And uh, Tim Robbins is like, hey, can you get me Rita Hayworth? So Red gets him a Rita Hayworth poster, which will Huge be important. Poster. Yes. It's like 24 by 36 for sure, like big poster. Yeah. And he gets him some stuff for like rock polishing because Andy claims to be into polishing rocks or well, whatever. And he wants to create like a chess set and yes. stuff too, where he's going to carve some things and you know, he, that's what he's into. Yes. The next big major dramatic thing that happens is that they need to do some tarring on the prison roof. And at this point, Andy sort of ingratiated himself into Red's crew. So Red pays some guys off uh, with cigarettes, and they all get to uh, work the early part of summer retarring the prison roof. And while they're doing this, um, Andy, who used to be a, a banker and was a successful mm-hmm. banker, overhears Clancy Brown's character talking about how his brother died, and he's awful about it. He's you know the other prison guards are like, oh, I'm so sorry to hear about your brother. And Clancy Brown's like, I'm not. He was an asshole or whatever. <laughs> it's just terrible. Just terrible. But the brother was rich and left him like thirty five thousand dollars. But Clancy Brown is like grousing about it because he's going to have to pay the tax man mm-hmm. all this money. And um, and then what am I going to do with that? Buy a new car and then I'm going to have to pay taxes on that. And then I'm going to have to. And then the kids are going to want me to drive them around. He was like, he's yeah. just so ungracious, like yeah. just terrible. Yeah. <laughs> just looking a gift horse right in the mouth. Right in the mouth. And then Andy hears this and starts walking over to him. And the other guys are like, Andy, what are you doing? Yeah. Like, do not go near him. I mean, he, this is a prison guard who kills people and gets away with it. But Andy walks over to him. When I was watching it this time, I was thinking, you know, Andy, you could have come at this a yeah. little bit of a safer way. But he's like, do you trust your wife? And Clancy Brown is like, what are you talking about? He's like, can you trust your wife? And like Clancy Brown grabs him by the lapels and like basically holds him all over the edge of the roof or like right at the edge of the roof, like he's going to drop him off the roof. But then Andy's like, no, no, if you, if you actually can gift the money to your wife, 
you won't have to pay any taxes on it. And Clancy Brown's like, you're, you're making this up. And he's like, no, no, you can call a tax attorney and they'll tell you what I'm telling you. Yeah. And he's like, you know, I'll help you do this. And all you got to do is once the job is over up here, get the guys beer to drink on their last day on the job. And so it works out. He does this for Clancy Brown's character and the guys all get a bucket of beer on their cold beers on their last day of the job, which Andy got for them because he believes that, you know, a man getting a cold beer bottle of suds after a hard day's work makes them feel human again. Well, that's what uh, Morgan Freeman's interpretation of Andy doing this is. But he actually says that to Clancy Brown because he's like, I think a man, like Andy says that to Clancy Brown. I'm talking about when Red's like narrating what's going on because Andy, the reason that he, because he helps uh, Clancy Brown's character with the paperwork for the, the tax stuff. Yeah. So... He, the, the gift is, yeah, he says, get these guys some beers or whatever. He follows through with it. He's just sitting over in the shade. Andy is like yeah. just enjoying the shade, not having any beer. And um, Haywood comes over with a beer. He's like, hey, Andy, do you want a beer? And he's like, no, nah, I gave up drinking, you yeah. know. And so but he's just sitting there just smiling. And Red's like, you could think that Andy did that to, you know, get some favor with the guys, you know, to make some new friends. Yeah. Or, you know, to get in maybe with the guard or whatever he's like. But, you know, I I think he just wanted everyone to feel normal. And that's something that comes in again later. He does a similar thing later, which is intended to make these people who are in prison and dehumanized feel like they're human beings again and that they are worthwhile. Interestingly, there's been a lot of... Christian allegory put on this movie, oh. not by Frank Darabont or anybody who made it, but like this scene has been interpreted as like kind of the last supper. Cause you know, Andy is seen as like a Christ figure and you know, whatever. Wow. Okay. Well, of course that's what people do. If they do that with anything that's popular, they, they try to put Jesus onto it. Okay. But anyway, I can sort of see where you'd get that. And definitely Andy is a little bit of a Christ figure and he has Christ like moments throughout the movie. So it's not that big of a stretch, honestly. That's me rolling my eyes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in fairness, uh, Frank Darabont does not claim that to be the case and nobody else who works. Just let it be what it is. Right. Nobody else. That's all I'm saying. I'm like, whatever. Well, I mean, when stories like this resonate heavily with people, there's usually because they have some sort of archetypal worth. Sure. And there you can see these sort of things in the patterns of the story. Sure. Anyway, we'll leave it at that. Because of what Andy did for um, Clancy Brown. Yeah. After that, he gets attacked one more time by the sisters. Yeah. And then he is beaten up so bad, uh, not raped that time, but beaten up so bad that he's in the infirmary for a month. Yeah. And then Clancy Brown kills Boggs. No, he doesn't kill kill him. him, Well, he doesn't kill him. Sorry. He, uh, but he nearly does. Yeah. he, He can't ever walk again because of that. When he gets out of the infirmary, the warden was like, you know, do you like working in the um laundry and he was like no and he was like well maybe we can find you something more suitable so then that's when he goes to the library and that's when the first guy comes in and was like can you set up a trust fund for my kid yes and then that's where all the taxes start getting done and everything but it's because he comes to the library and he gets to work because he's asking brooks he's like 
you've been the librarian since how long? And he was like, well, I got here in 05. And he was like, I've been the librarian since 12. And he's like, have you ever had an assistant? And he's like, no. And so, so he's like, why am I here? Yeah. And then it's very clear why he's here because like you said, is he's good with money. So this is going to be kind of a setup where he's doing all the taxes for everybody and doing all their money stuff. And yeah, the warden is played by an actor named Bob Gunton, who does a really amazing job at being kind of this horrible self-righteous man to the point about the Bible allegory stuff. He's a real Bible thumper. He quotes scripture and all this stuff, but we soon learn to realize that he is, you know, full of shit, full of shit (laughs) and not a good Christian by anybody's definition. This actor is not an actor who achieved a great amount of fame while he's shown up in other movies, but this is kind of what he's known for. Yeah. I mean, but he's been, he's actually, he's, uh, he's a recognizable face and he's been in a lot of stuff like, um, I guess he was a character in Daredevil, the series. Okay, yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was a character on 24, the series. He's in your favorite movie, Dead Silence. He sure is. So yeah, Andy is now basically doing taxes for all of the prison guards and like the, the prison baseball team for the other, some <laughs> the, the other visiting prison. prison guards. Yeah. Everyone's bringing their W-2s. Right. But sort of what comes out of this, which we'll play in later, is that he becomes this sort of valuable asset to the warden financially because he's got all these mad banking skills. Mm -hmm. A couple things about Tim Robbins and his preparation for playing Andy. One is that he actually spent some time in solitary confinement to get a feel for it even though he knew it wouldn't be the same because this was voluntary. Yeah. But yeah, that was, that was one thing that was really interesting. Um, another thing that was uh, really impressed Frank Darabont about Tim Robbins was uh, when we first meet Brooks, he has like this baby bird in mm-hmm. his pocket that he's rescued, like fell out of the nest and he named him Jake. And then, you know, as you were saying, time goes by quickly for us as we're watching this. And when Andy comes to the the library we see Jake is now like a full grown bird who's in there. And um, he's like a crow or a, a crow. raven. I think he's a crow or maybe a raven. But some interesting trivia about this was and when Andy goes to the library, Jake is squawking and Tim Robbins had to time his line of, hey, Jake, where's Brooks? So that the crow wouldn't squawk over him huh. because the bird could not be trained to squawk on cue. So Robbins was able to time his line perfectly by learning the bird squawking patterns. Wow. So like Frank Darabont was just like over the moon because, I mean, he was able to make it work with this, this bird. Tim Robbins is awesome. He's amazing. He's <laughs> so, I love him. So he's such as like, he's one of my favorite actors. He's yeah. just so great. Because he's working so closely to the library, Andy decides he wants to try to help the library grow a little bit. So he starts this letter writing campaign to like Senate or something representative or something like that. And he says that he's going to write a letter every week. Right. Yep. Which he does. So he starts writing letters every week. And then eventually, I think the next kind of major thing that happens is during this time, Brooks, we find out is Andy comes in to the library and Brooks has like a shiv against um haywood's neck yeah and you kind of are thinking like 
you know, he's an older man. Like, is he going, is this some sort of dementia episode or, you know, what's going on? And it's come to find out he's like, you know, this is the only way I'll get to stay. Yeah. And it's because he's been granted parole. Yep. And so poor Brooks, who's spent his entire life in prison. Yeah, he's probably, what, 70 or 80 he's at gotta this point? Be. Yeah, he went in as a, a fairly young man. Yeah. Which, by the way, in the trivia, which it's not um, shown in the movie or stated in the movie, but maybe it's in the short story or the novella, um, Brooks is apparently in prison because he had killed his wife and daughter. Oh, jeez. Which is brutal. Yeah, which is so interesting because he's such a beloved character that it's not that in the movie he says like i'm an old thief or something like that yeah he didn't kill his wife and daughter in the movie because they know they would get no sympathy oh yeah absolutely but i think it might be in this in yeah it's probably in the short story yeah Uh, yeah they would have get no sympathy from him for that yeah it was like over like a bad poker streak or something like that he ended up killing his wife and daughter or something like that anyway but yes he spent his entire adulthood in prison and so now he's going to be released. And this part of the movie just kills me every time because it's just so sad. Like, it's, you know, it's like, just let him stay, you know, like he yeah. doesn't he doesn't have any place out there. Like the world has gone and moved on. And then we have like Brooks's sad narration when he gets out, he's in his little sweet suit. And he goes to this like halfway house. Well, he almost gets run over by cars yeah. because when he went into prison, he'd only seen like one, one car. Automobile. Yeah, because it was like early 1900s. Yeah, and now they're everywhere. And they're just zooming all over and they're like, watch out, old timer. And, and he's like, the world just gotten such a hurry. Yeah. You know, and then like he's like at this this halfway house and then they've got him put up with this job bagging groceries, but he's arthritic. Yeah. And he's just, he's an older man. And it's just like, everyone's like mean at the grocery store to him. Like they're just like really frustrated. And he's just like, he just wants to go. And he is like, right. It's a letter he's writing to the guys back in prison. He just wants to go back home. That's what he's calling it. Yeah. The prison. He just wants to go back home. Anyway, it's, it's super sad. You know, it's going to a, a sad ending. It gets me every time. He goes and he gets up on a chair and he carves up in like the rafter or whatever. Brooks was here. Yep. And we see it after he's hung himself. Yep. It's just the worst. It's so it's just like talking about it. I'm like getting teary because it's just it's just it's like totally like pulls on the heartstrings. Right. And it also sort of foreshadows what Red feels is coming for himself. Sure. Because Red knows he's going to be in there a long time. Throughout the movie, we keep having these little scenes where Red goes before a parole hearing and gets rejected every time, even though he tells them, like, I've reformed and all this. I'm rehabilitated. I'm rehabilitated, but they always reject him. And Red talks about how Brooks was institutionalized. And that means that, you know, at a certain point, you're in prison for so long, it's the only world you're capable of existing in, and you really can't go back to the real world because... You just don't have any place in it. Nope. And I'm sure that is something that many prisoners feel and yeah. relate to. And it's a terrible thing that happens to people who have gone through the system and yes. who have been in there for a really, really long time. So after that, though, um, some good news comes because Andy is, you know, running the library because Brooks has left. He finally and again, it's like time has passed because one day he comes in and there's like crates everywhere. And, you know, Clancy Brown's like, get the shit out of here. I don't know what this is. And they like gives him a letter and it's it's from this senator or whatever government agency he's been writing. 
And there's like a $200 check in there. And they're like, and we've, you know, sent some books and media that was donated. Please stop writing us letters. Yeah. (laughs) And he's like, and Andy's just like, wow, it only took six years. Yeah. Now I'm going to write two letters a week. Yeah. It's just great. And one of the things they've donated is a record player and some albums. And while the guys are out in the yard, Andy's putting away some of the stuff. There's this prison guard who is actually kind of nice to him, Mm -hmm. but he's like, get this stuff all packed away, Andy. I'm going to go pinch a loaf. (laughs) And then when I come back, I want all this stuff squared away. So he goes off to the bathroom and Andy finds this record player and he finds this album of an opera i yes. forget what opera it is it's um mozart's um the marriage of figaro oh it's figaro okay yeah yeah so um he finds this album he puts it on he starts listening to the music and it's a very beautiful opera music and he gets this idea in his head because he's right near the prison intercom microphone he's in the warden's office right he's yeah. in the warden's office so he locks the Poor guy, poor prison guard who's nice to him in the bathroom. He locks himself in the office and he takes the microphone and puts it by the record player and he lets the beautiful Mozart music play out all throughout the prison and into the prison yard. And you get the scene where the men all stop and listen to it and it's sort of this moment of Red talks about how beautiful the sound is and made them forget that they're where they are, that there's beauty in the world and all this kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, he says something along the lines of like, Red says, you know, I don't know what these two Italian ladies are singing about, but it's just, you know, it was just beautiful. Like, yeah. he's like, it like, made you believe in places that weren't behind stone walls exactly. and that kind of stuff, you know. There's a lot of talk about stone walls and, you know, what that means and the, as a metaphor that is used both literally and figuratively in this movie. But this doesn't go over well with the warden and Clancy Brown and they break into the office and put Andy in the hole for two weeks or whatever. But it was all worth it to him. Oh, yeah. He came out with a smile. Yeah. He comes out smiling and the guys are like, God, how how can you be like happy? And he's like, well, I was just hearing the music in my head the whole time. And he talks about how they can't take away what's in your mind no matter and, what and it's an important conversation because it, it leads up to something later between a reoccurring theme between he, he and red because he's you know like andy's still like saying you know you can't give up hope you know right. you have to have something and red's whole thing is like you know these are pipe dreams you know just make the best of where you are type thing and yeah. um yeah it's it's in, in uh haywood the character is like couldn't you have played some Hank Williams? Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, well, I was getting ready to do some, take some requests, but they busted down the door. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah the theme of holding on to hope is obviously yeah. the kind of main theme of the whole movie. Um, it plays in, you know, very importantly in the climax, but it's, it's this, you know, red thinks that hope is dangerous. You know, when you're in a situation like this, where you're in prison, where your life has been completely taken away from you, you really can't hold on to hope because that's only going to break you. That's sort of Red's point of view. But Andy's point of view is that, no, you have to foster it. You have to keep it alive, however you can do it. That's all you have. Right. And going back to what you said earlier, actually, that would be part of like 
people relating some sort of Christianity to right. this because of you yeah. either believe or you don't. Yes. You know, yeah. it's, which makes sense. You could say that hope was faith yes. and use that. Yes. But you know, we're not going to do that. No, we're not saying that. Yeah. But and you could. You could. <laughs> one could, if one wanted to see yes. that in the movie. Yes. What's so the then the next event that happens is we get uh, a new batch of prisoners coming in. Mm-hmm. We get, um, and, and time is passing again. Like the library's getting, well, first we get the library getting spiffier. Yeah. Hayward gets his Hank Williams. He he's gets his Hank Williams <laughs> and he's singing along in yeah. the library. Library looks great. It yeah. looks way better because now he's like, now Andy's gotten, because he keeps writing these, these people, they now have agreed to give them like annually, like 500 bucks or something like that. Yeah. So like they have real money coming in for the library. Library looks like a real library now. Yeah. And Andy is also helping guys get their GED. But he's also helping the warden funnel money oh, yeah. into all. So because of this money that Andy's bringing in, the warden is now using money to pull shady shit. He's keeping highways from being developed because he can outbid all the contractors Tractors. with prison labor. So then and they're so, like giving him, paying him off to like not take the jobs so yes. that he can still work. Or they're, he's like getting, as Andy says, like kickbacks upon kickbacks from kickbacks. Right. And, and he, Andy explains to Red at one point, which is important that he's created because Red's like, this is all going to blow back. Somebody's going to find out about all this eventually. And Andy's like, no, they won't because I created this whole fake person who this all is going to lead back to and they'll they'll just trace it to him and he's not real not really only exists on paper and he's like it's amazing what you can accomplish by mail right so he's been able to like create this phantom person who has a driver's license has a social security card like has all these bank accounts and so yeah he's laundering the money and he's doing it in this way and so yeah that's all going on Things are humming along now. Yes. Andy's helping everybody like get their high school diplomas or GEDs. And then we get a new batch of prisoners coming in, in which we have uh, Gil Bellows. Interestingly, this role almost uh, went to Brad Pitt, but Brad Pitt had just had Thelma and Louise and he thought he was too big for this part. Oh. So he didn't take it, which is probably true. Yeah, it is he true. Probably he would have been big. fine too, though. He would have been, but he didn't need to be. No, there. he didn't. But Gil Bellows is great. Yeah, like, he does a great job. And this was like his time because this is uh, Ali McBeal. Was right. This yeah. Time, and a little later, was, but yeah. But yeah, he was, that's what he was, mm-hmm. he was big on. But yeah, so they could get the new crop of prisoners coming in and, you know, he kind of looks like um, Elvis <laughs> in the sense of like. Kind of like a, a Stephen King's greasers. Exactly. I was going to bring that up. This is the rare Stephen King greaser who's actually a good guy. A good greaser. Yeah. Usually in Stephen King stories, he's very afraid of greasers. <laughs> he was clearly terrorized. terrorized by greasers as a kid. And so they usually are these figures of fear and... and they're always the nemesis. Bullying yeah. or straight up they're demons. You know, yes. it just depends what it is. But in this case, Gil Bellows' character is actually... A nice a greaser. greaser. Yeah, the guys like him because he's a wise ass, yeah. but the, he's, you know, the kind of endearing wise ass. Well, and he's young, you know, yeah. it's like he's, yeah, he's totally likable and, yeah. you know, he just talks a good game and, and they just, I think they're just happy to have some like fresh young blood in yeah. there too, that they just, they, everyone in the group likes him. 
But Andy's kind of a little wary of him because yeah. he's been like he's done like multiple stents in prison, like everywhere. Yeah. Like little short stents, but like for, you know, n- not murder or anything, but like a lot of like stupid petty robbery, theft. petty theft. Yeah. And he's not like and I mean, Andy makes a comment, something like you maybe you should think about another career. Yeah, <laughs> you're he's like, you're not, not a good thief. Not a good thief. <laughs> yeah, you keep yeah, getting yeah. like caught. Yeah. And he's like kind of offended a little bit. Gil yeah. Bellows is. And then he kind of, you know, it, it turns into a joke, you know, and everybody's laughing and it's fine. And he comes to Andy in the library and he's like, I heard you've been getting, helping guys get their um, high school equivalency or GD, whatever. And so Andy's like, yeah. And he was like, you know, well, maybe you can help me. And he's like, you know, only if you're serious. And, da, da, da. and we come to find out that the, the character is Tommy, that he's playing Gil Bellows. Right. That yeah. he um, can't, he's like, I can't really read too good. And, and Tim Robbins is like, or Andy's like, you mean you can't read well? You can't yeah. read very well. He's like, we'll get to that. Yeah. But he totally helps him learn how to read. Like goes back to like ABCs and, you know, sentence structure and nouns and verbs and Gets him through the whole thing, and then we cut to him taking the the test, and yeah. you know Tim Robbins has to time the test, and the, the, he's done. But Tommy hasn't finished the test, and he just has like a meltdown, which I thought was also great because he's like, you know, there's a cat up the tree and this and that, and five times five is twenty five, and I'm like, it is, like yeah. you know, you, you got it. Yeah. And um, anyway, he throws his test away and leaves, and um, you see Tim Robbins getting the test out of the trash, right. and you kind of know where that's gonna go. Unfortunately, things go bad for Tommy. Because Tommy has been in all these different prisons, he recalls an incident he had with one of his cellmates where the cellmate was describing the a murder he committed that sounds exactly like the murder of Andy's wife and her lover. So Andy is convinced that this guy is the real murderer and he's innocent. So he goes to, which he knows he is, he knows he's innocent. But I mean, you know, it's been a sort of this running gag that when Andy got to prison, Red asked him, you know, did you do it? And Andy's like, no. And like, Red's like, well, don't you know, we're all innocent here. Right. And well, and Red's like, I'm the only guilty man in Shawshank, right. actually, because he like, Red has admitted to his crime. Right. But everybody else is, you know, it's it's the running gag. Well, you know, nobody did what they did. Or, My lawyer screwed me, this right. and that and the other. Yeah. Yeah. So nobody's really believed at this point that Andy didn't kill his wife. They all just think he can't admit it to them. But it turns out that he really didn't do it, that he, this guy did it and he got the blame for it. And so Andy goes to the warden and his buddy that he's been helping out with everything. Right. It should go fine. Right. And he's like, I need to go pursue this. I need to, whatever he needs to do to try to, whoever he needs to contact to get a, a retrial. But the warden's like, at first he's like, I can't believe you fall for this, that this guy would tell you this. And Andy's like, what are you talking about? And the warden keeps basically putting him off. And then Andy's like, why are you being obtuse? Yeah. And the warden's like, what did you call me? Which I think is funny because I think the warden doesn't know what, what obtuse, obtuse means. means at that point. I, I thought so too. Yeah. But he just thinks he's insulting him. Yes. And he basically has Andy thrown in the hole because Andy starts to get more and more worked up. The warden doesn't want to let Andy go no. because Andy knows too much. Well, Andy's helping him with all these illegal things. And then Andy makes the grave mistake of saying, like, 
he's like, you know, if I got out, I would never talk about what's going on here. Right. And that's just like the that's just the nail in the coffin. Yes. Because then he comes unhinged because this is not something we speak of. Not Andy's smartest moment. No, in the but story. he was just like spinning. Spinning. You know, out, it's yeah. like he the, the warden is just shooting down everything he's saying. He was like, no, but this guy, the guy who was the um, Tommy cellmate had worked at, he had been working at the golf club encasing yeah. the whole scene there. Yeah. So there would be record of his like pay stubs. There would be a way to track this guy. Like Andy's just like, yeah, we could find him. Like yeah. this could happen. You know, Tommy says he'll testify. Duh, 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 duh. But then the last thing he says, it just, which just seals his fate of going into the hole for a fucking month is because he says we won't. I won't Two talk. Two months. But no. But it's one month. And then an additional. He, go, month. He, he gets one month, and then they have a scene, yeah, and then and he, he gives him another, another one. Yeah. So it's two months total. But yeah. So the first time though, it's because he has said I won't talk about what's going on in the yeah. prison. So then we just see him in the hole for you know it's just forever, and like we do get one of the guards who's nice comes by and tells him. Hey, the kid passed his yes. test. You know, I thought you'd want to know because that, that was a really happy moment. Yep. And we get to see Tommy celebrate or whatever with, you know, the guys are all excited and it's it's a, a sweet moment. But not to last. No, because Tommy gets called out one night. Like, I think he's out by the prison gates or something. Well, they tell him to go meet. The warden wants right. to talk to him outside, like in the yard. Right. Which is. At night. You know is not a good thing because why is he now outside in the yard at night? And, you know, the warden is there and he asks him what he told Andy and gives him a cigarette. And he's like, "Are you, now, would you be willing to testify to this in front of a court and the presence of God and all that? Well, he also like leading up to that statement is just talking about how like, wow, this information's really been keeping me up at night and I don't know what to do and all of this. Like he's like really like setting the scene of like that this is really weighing heavy on him. If you ever find yourself in a moment like this where somebody's having this kind of conversation to you in a dark uh, place, just run yeah. Like you're, it's not gonna you're go well. screwed. Yeah. You're not. It's a very sort of mafia like scene. Felt very Sopranos or something yeah. like, hey, are you going to testify? Like, would you test if somebody's asking you that in a dark place? Just say you wouldn't or, do it. Or, or <laughs> Tim Robbins and Mystic River. Right. What I, was exactly. yeah, I was like, this is just bad. Don't go yeah. out there. Not the time <laughs> to tell the truth. No. But. Clancy Brown is hiding up in a crow's nest or something and shoots him Tommy dead. Yep. In cold blood right there. So Tommy's Tommy's dead. And then the war, that's when the warden stops by the hole. Yep. And he's like, you know, certainly you've heard at this point about Tommy. It was a tragedy. You know, who knew with only a year left that he would try to run. Yeah. And, you know, he just knows. Yep. And Tim Robbins is like, or Andy is like, I'm not going to help you anymore. And the warden's like, oh, you're going to help me. We're going to go right back to the way things were. And like, or I'll shut the library down and we'll have a old fashioned book burning. I mean, just like starts threatening him with everything. Like, you know, just, just terrible. Yes. And then he gives him another month to think about it. Yeah. Oh, then he's like, oh, and that protection from the guards is going to go away and all this stuff. Like, it's just, just, he's just terrible like you think in the beginning like 
you know, the warden's an uptight, bad Christian, you know, phony Christian type yeah. or whatever. And he sucks. But you really think that like Clancy Brown is the worst. Right. And it's like, no, the no. warden is the absolute worst. Right. He's a different kind of evil there, but they both they represent. Both yeah. Well, they very much are like, you know, you've got the brutish henchman and you've got the evil mastermind. Yes. Yes. They're sort of archetypal yes. evil characters. Which is why I think they're really effective. Oh, yeah. So Andy gets out of the hole and he's got to go back to doing things the way he did before. But we really get the sense at this point that he's sort of broken. Yes. He's just kind of sitting there in the yard and Red comes over. That's sort of where they have their conversation about hope and all that. And Andy's talking about... There's this place, you know, he talks about this place in Mexico, mm-hmm. which is near the Pacific. If you go there, they say the water's so beautiful that you forget your past and yeah. everything. The Pacific Ocean has no memory. It has I no think memory. Is what they say about it. Right. But yeah. they're talking about a place you can go where yeah. your past isn't there to haunt you anymore. Exactly. And this is when Morgan Freeman's like, this is dangerous types of thinking. You know, you can't have this kind of hope. And this is when Andy says, you know, Get busy living or get busy dying, right, which, which is a famous is, yes, line. Which and, is one of the most famous lines from the from the movie. And then Red starts to walk away. And then Andy's like, Red, you know, I, if you ever get out, yeah. like, I, I, can you do something for me? Yes. And Red's like, sure, sure. And he's tell Andy tells him specifically about the spot in uh, Buxton, I think yeah, it is. Buxton, in, in Maine. Maine. Yeah. He's like, have you ever been to Buxton? It's the place with like this beautiful oak tree. It's by the biggest bale, hay bale or whatever. And like, and you know, he gives him very descriptive directions as to where this spot is. Follow this like stone wall and then you'll find a stone that doesn't look like it belongs there. Yes. Like glass type stone. Look under the stone. Look under the stone. But this is the tree where I proposed to my wife. And he's also dealing with, he's talking to Red. He's like, you know, I should have been a better husband. Yeah. I didn't pull the trigger, but in a way I got her killed because I was, you know, I'm a hard man to know. Mm -hmm. I should have been more open with my feelings. That's why she went to someone else. And, you know, just kind of like the chain of events that happened. He feels that he's responsible in that way. It's actually a really complicated, dramatic scene. And I think it's one of the reasons why this movie is so highly regarded and so successful because, I mean, you listen to us talking about it now. We've brought up like three different major things that sort of happen in the scene, but the way it's written is so elegant. Like it all flows perfectly together that you get Andy's confession. Mm -hmm. Like, and this is his moment of being like, it was my fault, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm to blame and Red's like, it wasn't your fault. You're guilty of being a bad husband. Yeah. You know, there's things you're guilty of, but you weren't guilty of murder. And then, you know, it just, it seamlessly goes from all of these different points. And that's really difficult to do, to write a scene that is serving this many major parts and being really dramatic at the same time. It's a really elegant, beautiful piece of dramatic writing. And it has that great line, you know, get busy living living or get get busy busy dying dying. ends on that it's just from a writing standpoint it's just perfect i I can't think of a better way to say it than how you just did that it's it's just elegantly executed yeah it's just 
Yeah, it's just perfect. Yeah, it's a moment in this movie where I feel you really, you're into drama and you can appreciate well-written drama. I mean, the whole movie's been good, but this is the moment where you're really like, okay, this movie is very well-written because that is not easy to do. Very few movies manage that tightrope walk of information, catharsis, the theme of the movie is being encapsulated there. It's a very, very, very good scene. And this is sort of the last moment between these two characters. Because Red goes back to the guys. Yeah. And they're like eating together and, you know, in the cafeteria or whatever. And Red's like, I'm, I'm worried about him now. Like, we need to, you know, keep an eye out on him or whatever. And, and Haywood's like, it's just so great. He's like, well, he stopped by the shop the or shop. whatever. Yeah, Haywood yeah. works in the shop. shop yeah. And he's like, he stopped by the shop this morning and at, told me he needed six foot of rope and he's like so i gave it to him and they're just like what he was like well why wouldn't i and everybody thinks like oh my god it's gonna be like brooks or you know he's, yeah, he's, he's gonna, gonna hang, hang himself. himself and they're just everyone's just like on like watching andy you know and 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 meanwhile you know we get andy in the warden's office or library like finishing up uh you know the, the warden's like I want to go home soon or whatever. And Andy's yeah. like, I'm almost done here. Lickety split. Lickety split. Yeah. He's such an ass. Yeah. And, um, he's like, you know, Andy's like, I'm almost done, sir. You know, and he's like finishing up these, this does this nightly deposit every night where he has to hand the checks to the warden and then yeah. the warden puts and the, the ledger, the ledger goes into the safe, yes. which is behind this. <laughs> I was teasing Sebastian earlier. I was like, I'm going to put these all around the house. Yeah. And he's like, faux crocheted like bible bi- quotes. horrible bible co- quotes or whatever and yeah so that's that's hiding the safe anyway so yeah he puts that in there and then of course the warden's like you know because he's like his assistant is you know take my laundry down and, and i want my shoes to shine like mirrors yeah and so we see andy just shine in the shoes and and then we see him doing the slow depressed walk back to his cell yeah you're really being sort of led to think that Andy's going to kill himself. Yeah. But the next morning comes and uh, they open up all the cells and Red says like it was the longest night of my life because he's expecting Andy to be dead. Yep. They open up the cells and Andy doesn't come out of his cell and the prison guard's like, get out to friends and like, I'm you're wasting my time or whatever. They go over to Andy's cell, and Andy is not in his cell. Vanished. He's just straight up gone. Vanished. There's no, like, there's nothing. He's just not there. And the warden comes in and is just freaking out, and he's like, you know, where is he? Where is he? He couldn't have just vanished. He's having a fit. He's taking the chess pieces that Andy's made, and he's, like, throwing them at people. <laughs> like, he, he has red pulled into the cell because he's like i know you're you or him are tight thick as thieves thick as thieves where is he gone and red's like, like i honestly don't, don't know. know yeah and like so he's throwing these chess pieces around and then now it's raquel welch, raquel welch on the wall because andy has upgraded his yeah it was rita pin-ups. then it was marilyn monroe and yeah. now it's Ra- raquel welch it's another life-size poster right and so the warden throws one of he's like, and she he, fuzzy pant, fuzzy britches. Yeah. She's, <laughs> she's in her like BC. Outfit. Like, it's a conspiracy. They're all behind it. You and her and fuzzy britches over there. And he throws <laughs> the piece at the poster and it goes right through the poster because <laughs> there's no wall behind it. And they pull down the poster and 
Andy has chiseled <laughs> away a hole through the wall right. with the little tiny rock hammer. Rock hammer that he was been given because on one of his first nights at the prison, they do a sort of flashback where you see Andy, you know, one of the first nights he was there and there's sort of like he could see that somebody had sort of tried to carve their name in the wall. And so he starts to carve Andy, but then part of the wall chips away. So he realizes that it's actually pretty soft Mm -hmm. rock. And then so, you know, over the years, he's just been chipping away and then putting rocks in his pocket and then going out (laughs) to the yard and (laughs) dumping it through his pants in the yard. And he's carved a, a hole th- all the way through the the wall and it's thick it's like it looks like it's he's got to crawl through there it's at least i don't know 10 feet thick or something yeah he's just working on it every night for close to 30 years right <laughs> like just and it's like this little rock hammer so it's not noisy nope. i mean he's just able and and red had made a joke in the beginning where he was like when he saw the hammer yeah he was like Oh, it would take you like 600 years yeah. to get out with that. And he's like, nope, it took about 30. 20 or 30. I don't remember 30, how long yeah. it was at that point. Yeah. But I mean, also fortuitously for Andy, there was a thunderstorm the yep. night before. So he's crawled through the wall, but then he's got to go down and he's now in like this sort of, uh, you know, in between space in the prison where there's piping mm-hmm. and he's got to smash into a sewer pipe, which he does timing it to the thunder crashes. thunder crashes and he smashes to the sewer pipe and then crawls through as red describes 500 yards, yards of, of shit. shit to come out uh, a sewer pipe out into uh, outside the prison. And this is all being narrated by, Red describing yeah. what 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 Andy, had, what Andy did. The rope was used because he had the prison ledgers in a jar tied to him because he had faked the prison ledgers he had given to the warden. He'd actually put a Bible in there instead of the ledger yep. with a nice little inscription on it. He's also got the warden's dry cleaning on underneath his clothes well he actually i think he put it in the bag because i noticed that when he came out right and you see like gets that that famous scene that you get yes where he strips down yes he he just takes off his prison clothes i think right. i think he smuggled them out he smuggled them out under his, his clothes, clothes and then, and he, then put he put them in, in a in jar yeah or something. The, it, well he had like a bag it was yeah. like a, a jar a bag that was tied to like waterproof bag that was right tied something to that was tied to yeah. his ankle yeah and when he comes out into the mud after he's gone through the sewer pipe we get the famous yeah it's raining and we get this overhead shot of right. him and he's taking very, off his shirt and... very christ-like oh, he's yeah. making the like christ jesus pose, christ pose. pose baptism of water yeah. upon him the healing baptism of water but yeah he's got the warden's clothes and so you know he makes it into town with his nice shiny new shoes and his suit and he goes to the bank and he assumes the a fake identity that he's made. The phantom the, comes to life. Yeah, the phantom comes to life. And now Andy is this person. And he's cashing out at every bank in town. Yeah, every and, bank in town. And it, to the tune of about uh, $370,000, yeah. which especially at that time is would have been a huge. lot. Yeah, that yeah. would have been like the equivalent of a million dollars or more at that yeah. time. So yeah, he... Gets all the money and disappears and, and is not found again. Well, and that's the last we see of Andy. Yes. And then um, he sends a nice little package to the press. Oh, well, yeah, but that happened. Yeah, that happened at the bank. 
So when he was at the bank, he the, the last thing that he said to the bank teller was like, can I help you with anything else? He's like, could you put this out in today's mail? Right. So that's how it gets to the Portland Daily Bugle or something like that. Right. So this ledger goes to the Portland Daily Bugle. They realize the corruption the warden is guilty of, plus the murder that Clancy Brown is guilty of. The warden sees this in the paper. He goes to the safe. He opens the safe. And in it, he finds the Bible that is not the ledger, but the thing that Andy substituted. And in it is written a quote like, you were right. Like salvation was within. Because yeah. at one point the warden had said yes. to him that salvation was within the Bible. Yes. And like the warden opens up the Bible and there's a little cutout of where Andy hid his Rock chisel hammer. thing. And then the police come for the warden and he blows his brains out. Yep. And they arrest Clancy Brown and apparently he's crying like a baby. Yes. Because now he's going to prison. I kind of <laughs> wish we saw him in prison. I know. It would have been great. So, yes. So then that's the last we know about Andy. And then we just see the guys at lunchtime or dinner or whatever. And they're sitting around and they just like to really reminisce about Andy. And, you know, it just makes them feel good. And it makes Red happy, but also a little sad because he, he's like, I just really miss my friend. Yeah. But, you know, I'm happy that he got out, you know, and that's just, you know, some is a whole like allegory about, you know, some birds weren't meant to be caged yeah. and you just have to let them fly because you know their colors were too bright or something like that yeah, and feathers are too feathers bright are too bright yeah and it's, yeah. it's very sweet and he's just like mostly i think i just miss my friend yeah red got a postcard that yeah. is doesn't have anything written on it but the postmark is from somewhere in texas fort right. something wherever the andy it's like border, crossed border, border crossing border is Mexico. yeah and red's like i like to imagine andy in, in the car that he bought with the money yeah you know convertible right? We got a shot of Andy just driving along the Pacific. Yeah. Yeah. So then Red's up for parole again. And now Red just gives zero fucks when he goes to the parole board because he's tried for like, it's like every 10 years. And so, you know, these guys again are like, so do you feel that you have been rehabilitated? And he's like, I don't know what that means. Yeah. I don't think you know what that means. Yeah. And he goes and tries to explain it to him. He was like, no, I know what it means. I don't think you know what it means. And he was like, this is, you know, and he just basically calls out that this whole like rigmarole is this bullshit. And then he's not, he knows he's not going to get out. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I feel bad about what I did. I wish I could go back to that kid because yeah. I was a kid yeah. at that point and like tell him not to do this. Yeah. You know, basically like, you know, this is not the way to go. Yeah. And for whatever reason, of course, because that's just how life is, his parole finally gets accepted. Yeah. He's like, I, but whatever you do, I don't really care. I don't really <laughs> give a damn or whatever. And then, of course, they accept his parole right. that time. So Red is now back out in the world and his experiences are very much parallel to that of Brooks. In fact, he even ends up at the same halfway yep. house and sees same. where Brooks has written up on the ceiling that he was there. Same job. He's working at the same grocery and he like asks the manager to go to the bathroom and the manager's like, you don't need to ask me every time you need to take a leak. And Red's like, I've been asking somebody to take a leak for, for like 40 years 40 or something years. yeah so he's sort of feeling despondent and very much in the way that brooks did yep but he thankfully decides to honor andy's last request and he goes out to uh buxton maine mm-hmm. and follows his directions i gotta say like <laughs> Poor Morgan Free. Oh my like, God. Andy should have come up with something a little bit easier to do. A little bit 
better directions too. Like, I mean, I mean, I like he found it, but it's yeah. just like, but it was a real trek. He's like a seventy-year-old man, and he's like walking and miles sweating. and miles, and sweaties in his like suit. suit. Yeah. That's the thing is like, yeah, always everyone's always having to wear suits at this time. I just thought like this is really miserable. Right. Like I really felt bad I for did Red. Too. Like, God, couldn't he have made it a little closer? Like nope. so Red goes off to this spot that Andy has told him to go to by this tree, finds the rock and the, the the rock wall, and underneath it is like a little tin, uh, and inside the tin is a letter and some money. Yep. And the letter is basically just like, you know, I, I'm glad that you had enough hope to follow this to this letter, and I hope that you have a little more in you to continue. You remember the name of the town. Yeah, you remember the name of the town, and I can't remember it. It's like well, Rada Lower Haraga yeah, or something. I can't, I can't pronounce they it. They came up with a pretty difficult to yeah, pronounce name. I can't pronounce it, but yeah. he's basically like, I need a guy who can help me get things done. And he said he, you know, one of the things Andy said that he wanted to do is go to this place in Mexico and find an old piece of crap boat and refurbish it and take people out fishing. Charter fishing. And he also wanted to like open a hotel. Right. So Red takes the money and he goes and gets himself a bus ticket and he commits his last crime, which his is jumping crime parole. Is what he said. He's like, "This is my second and only crime I've ever committed." Right. Was like breaking my parole right. by leaving the country, obviously, or leaving even the state. Yes, he breaks his parole and he's you know we see him driving down the road in the bus and then. We see him arrive on a beach and he finds Andy there uh, working on his boat. And it's interesting because I feel like this last little shot, I bet, was a reshoot. Because I feel like the movie ended when you just see the bus driving away. Like, But they were like, no, people want to know he got to Mexico. I mean, I don't have a problem with it. I'm just saying it feels like something they added. It does feel like there's something they added. And, you know... Usually this is, you know, I'm somebody who is less is more usually, but I do want to see this. I want to see those two friends hug. Yeah. And it just gets me in the feels every time. Right. Yeah. It's for a maximum emotional impact. We see them reunited and they hug. And it's brief. I mean, it's already like pulled back so far. You can barely, you see them though. You see them like see each other and then they go over and there's just like an embrace and that's it. Yeah. But yeah, it feels like test audiences were probably like, we want to see, see them yeah. get together again. Because yeah, I feel like the way the voiceover and everything works, it just stops right when you see the bus driving and away. And it would have been fine just with the bus. It would have been, been fine. But I'm uh, for once, I'm here for this added, what feels to be added it's, on scene. Yeah, it's certainly not in any way terrible. Or, no. It, but it feels like an add-on. Yeah, but it feels good. It feels good, <laughs> yes. So, yeah, that's the end of Shawshank. Um, if you are a person who has swept up into the emotions of movies, you're probably crying once the credit starts rolling. I noticed you were even a little teary. Even, every time. Even after you've seen So this many one. viewings. Yeah. No, it just, it, it gets me every time. This friendship is just so beautiful. Yes, it's a really nice story about friendship between men yeah and it's just after especially because the the, the the things that go so wrong with poor brooks you know getting out there it was like just seeing morgan freeman going through this it was like no yeah no like, it doesn't have to be like this it's a pretty long little last segment yeah. too considering you know like from the time andy 
escapes to the end of the movie. It's probably, I don't know, 15 minutes. Like yeah. There's probably about 15 minutes of movie. Uh, but but it, it, you need it, definitely. And it is just, it's so, so much redemption happening. Like, the, this film, it just does what you want it to do on so many levels. You get the, the friendship reunited. You get the evil warden and guard, like, just taken to task. Like, that's just not how life works, you know? It's yeah. just, and, and it's just so cathartic to see things be the way they should be. Yes. It's it's a very satisfying, uh, dramatic, and emotional finale. And it's not over saccharine, though. It's like, no. it's not, it's just done in such a, like, there's other times that something like this could happen and I would be rolling my eyes right out of my head. Yeah. But it's just not that with this film. I agree. I think it's the right amount. Yeah. You know, I'm pretty sensitive to that. Yeah. I'm pretty cynical and I chafe when I feel that I'm being manipulated yeah. too heavily by a movie. Like, you know, sometimes Spielberg movies yes. don't work great for me because I'm just like, you know what? You're laying it on too thick. I know thick. what you're doing here, Steve. Yeah. I feel <laughs> manipulated. And I mean, this movie's definitely manipulating you, but it's, I think it's doing it effectively. Yes. I think there's a reason why... It's so beloved, and that's because it's just effective. Yes. It's a very well-written, well-constructed piece of drama. And well-acted and just, yeah. yeah. It's just the right characters, the right actors playing them. It's just, yeah, it just all works. It all works really, really well. But it didn't work for the opening weekend when it came out in 1994. Now, what would be your guess as to why? I have no idea. I honestly don't. I don't remember marketing for this or anything. Do you? Think? I remember seeing some posters and stuff, but sure, it definitely but wasn't big marketing. Yeah. I I can tell you what I think went wrong in okay. terms of when it came out. I think it just it hit a bad moment culturally where there were other big things going on because the big movies that year were Pulp Fiction mm -hmm. and Forrest Gump. So you've got two totally different types Polar of opposites. movies that are really drawing a lot of people like you're either a Pulp Fiction person or a Forrest Gump person. It just kind of got lost in the shuffle, like I think, because I think it came out pretty close to those two because it was near the end of the year, you know, during awards season or whatever. And those two movies were going strong. Yeah, I think it just kind of got lost in that shuffle. I think that. The name of the movie is a problem. <laughs> well, that's what, um, that's actually, it, I was reading in the trivia, that's what Morgan Freeman said. Right. And he I, was like, there wasn't, this was a time for people who didn't live through this time. This was before the internet was like yeah. a, a big thing. So there wasn't a, a way for Morgan Freeman to, you know, or, or anyone involved with the film to, to speak to a wide audience right. you know, off the cuff about like what was their feelings about why the film wasn't doing well or X, Y, or Z. It just wasn't, there wasn't a, a way to do that. Right. Like there is now where, you know, he could just go and tweet like, I hate the name. Right. You know, <laughs> so, yeah. 
But apparently that was something that he had said. Right. Was he thought the name was what really was hurting like the, the film. I agree with him because if, yeah, if you think about the time, it's in the early 90s. There isn't really an internet. So you see this movie called yeah. The Shawshank Redemption. First of all, Shawshank Prison is not a real prison. It is a construct made up by Stephen King, which appears in, in so many stories, a bunch of stories. And so it's his like fictional Stephen King world prison. Right. But no one else has a reference Right, but for it's it. not like Alcatraz Redemption. If you called yeah. the movie like <laughs> the Alcatraz Redemption, people would at least know what Alcatraz was or yeah. some other famous, I don't know, Leavenworth Redemption. Sure. You know what I mean? If you took- Atticus a, Redemption. Right. If you took a, a real world prison and- and said that, that might have helped a little bit because then people would be like, oh, it's about a prison. And also, it's about a prison, not exactly a huge genre that people go rushing to with wads of cash in their hand. Right. Like, <laughs> you know, people generally aren't really that into prison movies. If they are, they're into like horrible prison right. exploitation, exploitation movies. Yeah. Prison movies are or never action big. films right. or something, you know, like Escape from Alcatraz right. or something like, like that. Escape from this prison yeah. or whatever. Yeah, it's just not a setting that makes you think, oh, this is going to be like a feel good drama. It just wasn't one of those things that was easily marketed. It wasn't the kind of thing that was like a high concept, easy sell elevator pitch. Like what, what is the concept of this movie? Guy goes to prison for 30 years and then makes a friend and then gets out. You no, can't even pitch you, it. You just have to see it. Like you just have yeah. to experience it. And I thought what I was saying is like, I'm like, I don't remember any marketing the, for this, but like, it's really kind of tough to market. The poster was just of Tim Robbins yeah. in the rain. Yeah. So you've got this movie called Shawshank Redemption, whatever the fuck that means. <laughs> you've got Tim Robbins shirtless in the rain. I like, love Tim Robbins, but he ain't selling tickets. No. You know, so I, I think it was just a really difficult movie to market effectively. And I think that it was coming out at a time when there were other movies that had big critical buzz that people were going to see. And oh my God, it, it opened the same date as Pulp Fiction. Right. Just death. Yeah. It death. just got clobbered. Yeah. Like I just was looking that up right now and it's like the same date as Pulp Fiction. I can tell you what movie I was paying attention on the day Pulp Fiction opened. Pulp Fiction. Well, not yeah, this movie. Absolutely. I remember Pulp Fiction opening. I don't remember Shawshank Redemption opening. So yeah, I mean, that makes sense. It was just sort of, badly positioned it had a name that would made no real sense <laughs> and it was a idea that was really hard to explain in one sentence to people why they should see it you just had to see it yeah and once you see it you love it right which is why it then became yeah. the movie it became the because loved yeah once people saw it once that that whole need to market it that way was gone then no it had to it was it. it was totally it's basically it was word of mouth yeah i mean you know re re critics and you know but people also just whoever did go see it yeah it's <laughs> like hey like this movie's movie. great yeah this movie's great you gotta see it and then so everybody did when it came out on rentals Which, and yeah and they ended up re-releasing it in the theater i guess and so it ended up actually making its money back eventually in re-release so there was a redemption for it. There was a redemption, a financial redemption. 
All right, well, I'm going to go get my rock hammer and my Rita Hayworth poster and crawl through 500 <laughs> yards of shit. That sounds delightful. <laughs> I might just, you know, watch this movie again. That about does it today for Tentpole Trauma. If you like what you heard, check out our social media presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Tentpole Trauma. That was easy, wasn't it? If you like us, hit subscribe and leave us a sterling review on iTunes, if you dare. If you really like us, head over to Patreon.com and get involved in one of our fabulous tiers. You'll be glad you did. Want to communicate with Tentpole Trauma? Send an email to tentpoletrauma at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And who knows, one day you may even get your email read on one of our shows. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you real soon. Real soon.